the principal, Becky Kundert, is going to be here to do orientation for anyone who would like to volunteer at Orchard Ridge Elementary. We're going to do it upstairs on the, on the second level in the computer lab. We will have uh, dinner, uh, and the, the program will go from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. And uh, I can't tell you uh, how much um, you can contribute to our community um, by choosing to volunteer with students in the public schools. So if that at all piques your interest, September the 23rd is a Monday night. Again, 6.30 to 8 will be orientation, and we can uh, even sign you up that evening with an online program. Uh, we're continuing in our series uh, in Ephesians this morning, and I would like you uh, to either turn in your Bibles to page uh, 1779 or read along with me on the screen. Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 22 through 28. You were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Uh, one of my favorite shows is coming into its final season um, this season. Uh, it's called Suits. And um, Suits is a story about, uh, on USA Network, I think it comes on 8 o'clock on Thursdays. It is a story about a New York high-powered law firm known for its style of, of, of their sartorial splendor of the partners and known for their winning-at-all-cost kind of philosophy. And um, what's interesting about Suits is uh, if you um, work anywhere, um, but if you work in, in the law field or if you work in business, I, I would suggest that you don't want to adopt their principles. Now, you might find it interesting entertainment. I kind of do, right? I probably wouldn't let my middle schoolers watch the show because for a lot of reasons, right? But you might find this to be interesting entertainment. But, but the, the problems with Suits are the principles that underline the storyline. Uh, it's best, and I've, I've been watching the series for a while now, and I've boiled it down to three key things that the, the Suits uh, staff stands for. Harvey Specter being the key uh, partner, and his uh, protege, Mike Ross, who's going to be back on the show a little bit this season. Is that here are the, the three principles at which the, uh, the, the cast at this law firm goes about their, their business. Bend the truth if you need to so that you can win the case. That's the first rule, okay? And, and winning is ultimate. Winning is everything. Bend the truth if you need to. 
in order to win the case. Here's the second one. Revenge is more important than doing what is right. So if somebody does you wrong, then never forget it. Never forget it. And as soon as you get an opportunity to get back at them, do so. Do so at your earliest opportunity. And this last one, I just watched this, this uh, particular episode with Harvey Specter. It, he's lying as usual, putting his, his career online every week. The firm is up to, to, to be, to be in, terminated every week, right? And uh, he lies and cheats and he says, I got my own personal moral code. And that transcends the truth. That transcends the law. That transcends your concerns. And so uh, I determine whether something was good or just, not by whether it was legal or if I hurt you, but if I was true to myself, to my, to my own self be true, right? And so these are the principles by which this firm goes by. And here's the, 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 the fruit of it is, uh, Jessica Pearson, the lead partner, was disbarred, all right? Now she's got a show that comes on at nine o'clock if you want to catch it on. She, she was disbarred for cheating and, and lying, right? The, the partner that took over from her, Robert Zane, he was disbarred, his name taken off the partnership. And the last, the, the loyal Lewis Litt, he was demoted because the bar came in and, 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 and some people are laughing as I go through this story. The bar came in and inserted a new managing partner. And I, I, I appreciate the, the uh, honesty that says if you live like this, if you lie and you cheat and you win at any cost, um, you, you lose ultimately. I appreciate their honesty with that. But the, what we see in our text this morning is something completely opposite of this. So Paul's principles work like this. He says to us, lay aside this kind of stuff. Don't stretch the truth for personal gain but always tell the truth. And then he says, don't let your anger lead you to wrath and to seek revenge, but practice self-control and actually deal with the problem. That's, that's Paul's countercultural perspective on how Christians who are changed by God and filled with the Spirit who've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, should put off the old ways of lying and revenge and win at all costs and put on love and grace and honesty and integrity. And so we're going to look, explore these things today. And, and the, the, my main point this morning is this, is that unity and maturity in the church requires graceful truth-telling, emotional temperance, and individual industry. Uh, let me say it this way. The gospel deals with our hearts, our minds, and the work that we do. And so as it relates to our minds, the gospel is saying to us that the truth is foundational for us. It's not relative. And we Christians should not be caught saying to anybody, your truth and my truth, that there is the truth. How, other, how else will we know whether there's lies or integrity, right? Unless there's objective truth. So, so in the, with our minds, we don't lie and we tell the truth, right? Uh, with, our, with our hearts, we uh, 
we monitor our emotions. We have emotions like anger and fear and so forth, but we don't let those emotions lead us into sin. We don't allow our emotions to lead us into sin. We are able to manage them, right? We don't sin and we, didn't, we don't simmer when things are wrong so that when I offend you, you don't stew on it for three weeks. You come today and talk to me about it and vice versa, right? We don't provide an opportunity for the, for the devil to take a small offense and make a big deal of it, right? And then lastly, um, in terms of how we go about our living, uh, we don't steal and we don't take, we actually give. We don't live for ourselves, we live for others. So the gospel uh, transforms our mind, our body, and our soul. That's how we are to love Jesus, that's how we are to love, love our neighbor, with our whole person. And so this morning I wanna talk about these three things. Your neighbor needs the truth out of you. Your relationships require emotional temperance. And lastly, you need to work and to give. Your neighbor needs the truth out of you. Ephesians 4.25 says this, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. One of the things that truth-telling does, as a, in addition to expanding the gospel, is it builds character in us. When I tell the truth, even when it causes me to look bad before you, I demonstrate that I believe more in truth than my personal pride. And when I tell the truth, the hard truth to you, with graceful love, even knowing it might hurt your feelings, I, I prove to you that I believe more in truth than in people-pleasing. So gospel people, Christian people, we believe more in truth than ourselves. We don't, we don't mind so much looking bad if the truth is promoted, if Christ is promoted, and we will risk hurting each other's feelings if it's necessary for us to gracefully tell a truth that maybe someone doesn't want to hear because we know that truth is the foundation for real change. I like the way um, John Stott puts it. Uh, faithful truth-telling, what it does is builds trust. Stott put it this way, former pastor, uh, Anglican pastor in London. He says this, he says, fellowship is built on trust and trust depends on the truth. In order for you to trust me and for, for me to trust you, that the foundation of our relationship has gotta be, uh, I know that every interaction with you is based on honesty. If, if there's anything less than honesty, that, that, it, that puts forth distrust. And I can't trust you, I, I, I can't depend on you. So trust depends on the truth. And trust builds your relationships, and truth builds your relationships even if the truth is not good. And this works in business too. So in 2009, um, Domino's Pizza, when I was in college between 82 and 86, is the first I had ever heard of Domino's Pizza. Now, if you grew up in Chicago, 
you, you, you grew up in a pizza snob kind of area, right? So Chicagoans would tell you that you can't get any real pizza outside of Chicago metropolitan area, right? And so, so what, but when I got to college, what I found out is pizza could be actually be made in 15 minutes as opposed to two hours and delivered to your door in 30. I was like, oh my God. The only fortunate thing about that is that it actually tastes like it. It tastes like cardboard, right, with sauce on top, with cheese that's not even cooked. By the time it's served, it's cold, right? But the good thing is that it, was, it fits into a college student's budget, at least it did back then, okay? It was really cheap, Domino's. Well, in 2009, they did a survey. And when they did the, the survey, they found out some terrible things. They found out that their pizza was, was considered boring. That's the, that's the worst of, of, the, of their offenses, to be honest with you. Boring. They said their, their pizza was bland. And lastly, the people told them their pizza was forgivable. And of, uh, uh, forgettable. And, uh, and out of all of the, the national pizza chains, <laughs> this is no surprise to me, they were tied for last with Chuck E. Cheese. Amen? <laughs> Now, you mothers and fathers, raise your hand if you've had a party at Turkey Cheese with your kids. I see a few honest souls out there, all right? Right? That's the only pizza in town worse than Domino's, okay? <laughs> so they were flat worse. And instead of trying to hide it and promote around it, they said, we got a massive problem. So what they did is they spent about a year retooling everything. Now, I don't eat Domino's, so I don't know if it's gotten any better, to be honest with you. I go to Connie's, I go to the Chicago franchises that serve pizza here, okay? But anyway, uh, uh, they retooled their pizza, every, every aspect of it, their whole menu, right? And then when they put their advertising out, here's what they said. They told them the, the same thing that I just told you. you. You've told us our pizza is crap. So here's what we did. We retooled everything. We came up with a new menu, and we're hoping that you're going to be pleased with the changes that you see. Go out and give it a whirl. And people did. And what happened a year later is they had the highest one-quarter sale in fast food history. They had a 14% increase in sales from telling the truth and owning up to it. Even in business, you can build trust by telling the truth. There's no need, these, 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 these companies kill me, telling us that their products are outstanding when everybody knows who's tried it is crap, right? They ought to say, listen, it's not that good, but it really is cheap, baby, just tell the truth. And people, people honestly will respect you for it. You build trust based on the truth. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. It works not only in business, it works between brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, the only way we can grow in maturity is based on foundational truth. So, um, you received a card when you came in. If you didn't, you can receive one on the way out. And the application question we want you to consider this week is this one. It says, think of a friend that needs to hear the truth from you. What would you say to them? It might be somebody right next to you in the pews. Could be a parent or a child. Think of somebody that needs to hear the truth from you and this week endeavor to tell them so that you can grow in character and they can grow in godliness.
Secondly, we talked about unity requires grace for truth-telling, emotional temperance, and individual industry. Second point, your relationships require emotional temperance. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. In your anger, i.e. anger is not bad, all bad. In your anger, do not sin. You trying to squash out your anger is like you trying to squash out joy. You ever heard people, I, I really try to control my emotions, right? I never want to show joy, right? Joy is weakness, right? This is a complete crap, Ola, right? You're going to be angry. Um, the, the Bible wants you to be angry for the right things and not to sin in your anger. Anger in itself is not sinful. Do not, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, i.e. don't stew on it, and don't, which, which will give the devil a foothold in your relationships. Um, there is a time to get angry. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 17, um, the people of Israel are lined up. They're in a fight with the Philistines. And David's brothers are at the, 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 the front of the battle. And every day Goliath comes before them and says, hey, listen, just send a man out. And if your man can beat me, right, then we Philistines will serve you Hebrews. But if you beat us, then we will serve you. Send a man out. And so this taunting is going on day after day, week after week. Uh, David's father is concerned about how his sons are doing, so he sends David with a present for the, the officers and, uh, to the front to get a report on what's going on. David gets to the front, and he can't believe what he's seeing. He sees Goliath run up and challenge the Hebrews, and he sees, he sees all the Hebrews quaking in fear, inc including their king Saul. And he looks at this situation, and he gets angry. And he said, who are these uncircumcised Philistines to stand before the armies of the living God? Now, you have to understand, he's a young guy, maybe 17 years old, like these guys here, right? Not, a, not you know what I'm saying? Not like the football badgers, but one of these kind of small, kind of nice looking, but really thin kind of guys, right? <laughs> like most of these guys on here, right? No offensive linemen or safeties on this group. <laughs> but he's filled of righteous anger at what's going on. So that's righteous anger. It's for good cause, the glory of God. But right in the same scene is his brother Eliab. Remember the story? Eliab says to him, you little punk. What are you doing coming up here? You left those few little sheep to come and look at the battle. Why don't you take your little behind back to your, to whatever, he's, he's angry. And so now we see unrighteous anger. What happened is his pride was affected. This one young 17-year-old was saying, I'm willing to stand up for the honor of God, and his older brothers are cowering in fear. They don't like it. They look bad. And so they respond with malice against him. But David is undaunted. He looks at the, the, the dishonor of God. He knows what God can do, and he stands up. And then David gets one more insult. Goliath comes forward, and he's really tall, what, 10 feet, you know, bigger than the best badger offensive lineman, okay, bigger than that guy. He's huge, man. He's monster. And he's decked out with spears and 
uh, impenetrable, it seems, and he sees this little scrawny, I should grab one of these guys. He sees one of these little guys, and he says, what? You guys got to be kidding me. You got to send out a dog to fight against a mighty man. And David looks at that guy, and he says, you come to me in your own strength and in support of your own gods, but I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. Today, through his power, I'm going to cut your head off and feed your flesh to the, he's angry in a righteous way. And you better believe the little small guy in the power of God does it. What I'm trying to say to you is there is a, such a thing as good anger. There is such a thing as good righteous anger. It's not for your personal pride. It has to do with the good of the other person or good of our community and the honor of Christ. There's such a thing as righteous anger. I'm ashamed to say that in my parenting, it took me until my son, my oldest son, was 19 and came back from Hamlin after one year for me to get a handle on not responding to problems like this guy. It took me a long time. It took me uh, saying stuff I shouldn't have done. It took me uh, just breaking trust with my kids. Uh, you know, don't get dad. He gets out of control if he gets angry. Because when you get angry, what happens is uh, your impulses take forward. The first thing, the first thing is you see something, you know it is wrong, it is wrong, and then you get impulsive and you get reactionary, and that tends to dominate your thinking. And so what has to happen is you got to get past that. you got to work past the anger. Sometimes it may mean that you need to remove yourself from the scene for a minute, get quiet, and begin to think through really what's going on. What is the underlying problem? Uh, what, uh, what is the reasonable way to deal with it? But in the midst of stuff, and this is why anger can be explosive, and this is why later on in the text it's, it says, don't get angry. Don't get angry like this, this character or like I did sometimes with my children, just something's wrong and just blowing a stack. You know, getting in, I call it going in fuego, you know, on fire, right? Don't do that. Um, but we need to approach it in a different way. You need to slow down, get away from the scene, and pray for a minute. And ask yourself these questions. Man, what's really going on here with this problem? And how, how might I be contributing to this problem? How, how might the ways I'm doing things be uh, flaming this problem up? Uh, what am I really angry about? Um, I found in my parenting, a lot of times I was angry because my children weren't living up to my standards. I know this gets you guys frustrated as heck when your parents are like, you need to be an engineer because we've been eight generations of crap, right? We're, we're trying to build you in our mode. Uh, personally, as opposed to in Christ's mode, it took me a long time to realize that's what I was doing. 
I wanted my kid, to, my oldest son, to play baseball because I played baseball. I wanted him to go to basketball and play college basketball because I, I opted not to do it, and I figured he could, he would feel, and what, what ends up doing is I end up frustrating him, ends up making him mad because I'm not focusing on godliness and righteousness and truth. I'm focusing on silly stuff that doesn't matter in the long haul. What am I really angry about? Is it righteous anger or is it just my personal pride and issues and so forth? And then what does God's word have to say about a potential solution? He's got a lot to say. God's word has a lot to say about offense and how to fix it. He's got a lot of things to offer us when we try to uh, engage in a problem gracefully with the truth. And then the thing, that this is when we know we got to the right place. How can I help the other person? When I can get myself calm enough to say, man, how can I be of assistance to the other person? Then I'm probably ready to re-engage and deal with the situation. So we got to slow down and get out of the impulsive, natural, um, vitriolic anger phase and get ourselves to the point where we can be thinking like Jesus Christ. That could take you a while. It might take you five minutes. It might take you a week. Whatever it takes, take it. Otherwise, you'll make the situation worse. And then the last thing here is that the time to stay angry when you, when you have legitimate angry is short. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't stew on it. Because when you stew on anger, two things happen that are disastrous. The enemy wants to take a problem between you and your sister you and your friend, you and your spouse, and he wants to make the problem a crisis. I gotta leave. I can't put up with this anymore, Craig. I gotta go, right? Small problems. Uh, dinner wasn't cooked. I didn't wash the dishes. All of a sudden, I gotta go back and live with my parents, right? The enemy wants to take what is small and what can be worked through and make it big and seem like there, someone is really um, doing you in. And they, they want to take a spat, which is normal in every relationship. I, in fact, I'll say this. If you have a friend and you haven't been through a point where either you offended them or they offended you and you're still friends, you don't have a friend. My, my oldest friend I've, ha I've known for 35 years, went to college with him. And one time we were working with each other in the same office and one of us said something we shouldn't have said. And we said to each other, you know what? If you don't learn how to look over a fence, you'll never have a friend. I'm telling you, this is the truth. If you don't ever learn how to look over some stuff and how to be humble yourself and gently engage with people on stuff, and if you've always got to be right on issues, you're never going to really have a friend. It's one of the reasons why we have such difficult times making friends is because we get so easily offended and we so easily write people off. But that's not Christ. And so as opposed to doing these things, uh, giving the, dead, the enemy this problem, remember the time to stay angry is short, and, but do this. There are some in my marriage I had to learn, took me about 15 years to learn that when I'm angry and hot and I want to deal with stuff, especially if it's the first time my wife has heard it, that's the wrong time to deal with it. Because she's a slow processor. We got any analyticals out there that they really take time to think through stuff, right? I'm a reactor, I wanna fix it now. 
Once I decide, once I stew on it a long enough time, now I want to fix it, right? But my wife is like, I heard the issue, let me think about it. So it took me 15 years to figure out, I better let her think about it. <laughs> and, so, and so I let her think about it, and, but, but here's the thing, and here's what most people do, is they, they um, kind of get out of the current situation and they never get back to it because they don't want the inconvenience and they don't want, they're, they're afraid of, of addressing the issue. So I'm saying don't do either. Don't, when the situation is hot, don't force it, but don't ignore it either. Deal with the issues because it's in truth that we build strength in our relationships. Amen? Am I talking to anybody out here today? Third point. Unity requires graceful truth-telling, emotional temperance, individual, and lastly, individual is industry. You need to work and to give. Ephesians 4.28 puts it this way. It says, uh, anyone who has been stealing must, no, must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. I forget the passage in, the, in Scripture. I think it's in Paul's letters where he says, if, if a person doesn't want to work, he should not eat. If, and it says, if a person doesn't take care of the members of their own household, they're worse than an unbeliever. Uh, be, that's because Christians, we live to serve. We live. Your design, God designed you not to be a receiver. God designed you not so the world would revolve around your little life. God designed you to be a part of his big mission, to go and make disciples of all nations, for you to be a part of his church, to you be a part of something bigger. And so your life is not about, um, you know, I live so that I can make a living, but I, I work rather so I can make a living, but I work so that I can give. So that spiritual maturity in church unity requires each one of us in the church to work and give. There is a man in our church that epitomizes this. I've known him. I've been at High Point since 2006. I've known him since that time. And when I got to thinking about this verse, I said, there's one man in this church that really lives this out so perfectly. Uh, I want to talk to him. So I got with him at Hellbox on Friday, and we had a 30-minute conversation about this. And he told me a story. I want to share the story with you. He says when he was 14 years old, um, he was raised in a Christian home, um, hadn't personally come to Christ. That would happen a few years later, but knew enough about godliness that it was, it was the time for Christmas, and the church was trying to take an offering for some missionaries. And he had been saving all year for something really special. He'd been saving for something that he really thought he, he wanted. But when the Christmas offering came and everybody in the church was asked to give, he went home and he went to his little bank where he had $29 saved up, his whole life saving. And he grabbed the money and he said, I was so excited, I was so joyous. I took that money and I, I went to the church and I gave everything. And I had this experience of joy like I've never had before. And he, and he said, I think because of that one thing, I think the Lord has always been able to trust me with plenty. And so he started working. And he owns his own business. 
And in addition to giving tithes, 10% of what he gives to the church, and supporting missionaries, he probably, conservatively, spends about 50% of his time just with people that, that have needs. Just working with people and tutoring people and counseling people. He spends about, and he says, he says I, I found this, he says, this is, I said if, you, he said, if you miss out on this, you'll miss out on all the fun. And he says, this is, Lord, this is just, I couldn't imagine just working for me. How boring could that be? I want to invest and see things going. And I said, well, how has this been a blessing to us? He says, Lloyd, I've been teaching this class for 30 years. I've been teaching young people for 30 years. And I ran into one of my students who's now a teenager. And they said to me, they said, hey, listen, you remember my Bible that you gave me when I was uh, age six? I still have that Bible. I still read that Bible. And you should have seen his tears was welling up in his face. Then he told me another story. And I was, I was tutoring at a public school, not Orchard Ridge, a different public school. And I had a young gal that was really struggling. I didn't know how bad things were at home, but I had been tutoring her freshman year, her sophomore year, her junior year. I didn't see her. And then her senior year, she came and found me. And she finally told me what was really going on in her personal life. Just lots of crap at home. He had no idea. And, and, and this woman said to him, young girl said, hey, uh, now, young woman, he says, I, I just want to thank you so much for investing in me as a tutor. She didn't believe she was smart and that she could do algebra and geometry. And this teacher always affirmed her. You can do it. See, that's why you got an A on this exam, because you really are smart. She says, when I was going through my junior year and was going through really difficult times, I didn't have you. And so I really struggled. But now I see how crucial you were in my life. Thanks for investing in me. You are, I don't want to, you to miss out on the fun of living and working so that you can give. So that you can give. And, and that's why the scripture says um, in the book of Acts chapter 20, Paul says, and we don't have it in the New, in the New Testament from Jesus. He has a quote. He says, from Jesus, he says, it's, it's better to give than to receive. That's because you were made to give. You were made to be a blessing to others. That's why Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for others. And so it is with you. You can't be the sanctifying agent for eternal life, but you can be a blessing to people such that you demonstrate the love of Jesus to folks. And that is what a real, godly, productive life is about. It's about what you can give and how you can see Christ work in the lives of students. There's nothing more exciting than to see how God is blessing people through your labor. So you need to work and give. I end with this story. Uh, Sister Rosemary is a Catholic priest and uh, a Catholic nun in Uganda. And in the, in the early 80s, Uganda was going through tremendous internal strife and civil war. So much so that any girl was fair game by this rebel army. They would go into a village, they would take the boys and make them children's uh, soldiers, and they would take the girls and use them as sex slaves. And so Sister uh, Rosemary wanted to do something about it. So she established a school for girls. 
but she didn't have any army to protect her. So she had her compound and she had her gate. And every night she would go out in front when the soldiers were fighting and coming. And all she would do is defend the place with prayer. She would be out there praying. And so when they came up, she'd be like, Lord Jesus, protect us from these folks. And she was able to save and maintain and keep her folks healthy and saved. She has, has a legendary school in, in Uganda. On her school grounds, uh, the community used to use it as a dumping ground. And they would dump all kinds of plastic uh, bottles and waste. And she would just get furious. He's like, why are you treating, don't you know that we're taking care of the most vulnerable girls here and educating them? Why is this becoming a neighborhood dumping ground? And then she got furious and she's wrathful and malicious. And she said, this is just getting bad. So she went on the internet and uh, the Lord must have led her to a site that showed how you can turn plastic into build homes with plastic bottles. Now, she, was, uh, she had a school and she had dorm rooms, but she didn't have enough dorm rooms for, for her girls. And she didn't have enough buildings for her classrooms. And she started finding out that these plastic homes would regulate temperatures so that in the heat of Uganda, it would be with these bottles filled with mud would keep the temperature inside at 65. So it would be outside at 105 and inside would be 65. This, this is an example of architecture that's all plastic bottles. So she was like, oh my God. He said, I don't have money, right? But I do have plenty of bottles. And so she started studying and she started teaching the, the women around her and finding some men in the community that could build these homes. And now, when the bottles are poured in her, her community, she says, thank you, Jesus. Because she can build homes for her students. So this is what Jesus does for us. When we see him on the cross, suffering, right? He doesn't turn into bitterness. He turns his suffering into eternal life for the world. And you, as you serve God, he says this, even in difficulties, he's, all things, uh, Romans 8, I think around 28 says, all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. God wants you to know that even the things that uh, annoy you, even the things that are hard and are difficult, God is using those things to bring character out of you and glory in the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Lord, we are um, thankful that those of us who are in Christ are called to be new. We have an, obje an objective truth that we can depend on, which is your gospel. And when we walk in obedience to the scripture, and when we tell the truth gracefully, Father, wonderful things can happen when we spread the truth that way. We can grow in maturity. Our churches can be more unified. Father, our, our homes can be more unified 
when we walk in the truth, when we manage our anger properly, not sinning, when we learn to be angry about injustice and look for solutions as opposed to being angry about our pride being hurt and trying to get revenge, when we get out of that, that mindset that, that kills and destroys, when we don't allow the enemy of our souls to destroy our fellowship and destroy our relationships, and Lord, when we work not just for ourselves, that when we recognize that you created us to give and not receive, and when we recognize that it's our joy is magnified most when we're giving, when we're focused on bringing glory to you and being a blessing to our neighbors, that that's where our joy comes from. We're living more like, most like you. So Father, bless us today. We, we really want to be uh, this, this kind of people who um, loves and serves you honestly and with integrity. And we want to be the kind of people that uh, sees others blessed from our ministry. We want to see that kind of fruit. Help us to, to build that. Help us to create that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.